Each week, Richard and Father Mark present a rigorous discussion of the Bible in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. Over 24,000 episodes are downloaded each month at no charge. Please consider marking your level of support with a one-time donation or by pledging a small amount per episode. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. When Paul talks about comfort in 2 Corinthians, it is easy to receive his words as much-needed nurturing as though we have suffered unjustly and are in need of God's intervention. But what if God has already intervened? What if the difficulties in our life are not unjust? What if the suffering of which we complain is not evil? What if the blessings and the curses in our life come from the same source? Richard and I begin our discussion of 2 Corinthians. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 122 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We just wrapped up our series last week on Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. 16 chapters and many more weeks took us through a repetitive argument that drilled and drilled and drilled Paul's insistence upon submission and framed for us Paul's understanding of power and how weakness serves divine power. He emphasized the importance of community. And like so many letters and stories in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians leads right into 2 Corinthians. In this case, Richard and I were talking earlier. It's obvious that they're connected because of the names, but it's important to remind the listeners always that the New Testament has a certain order. And even the syntax, the order and placement of books relative to other books, is critical. But here it's clear we're going from 1 Corinthians right into the second letter to the same community, narratively speaking, in the content of the New Testament. And Paul begins, as he always does, Richard, by emphasizing his station. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Like you said, Father, he begins with his title and he is writing this from Paul and Timothy, showing the unity of thought. Because remember in the last letter, it was Timothy is going in my place and there won't be any argument with him, of course, because he's just going to be saying what I'm saying. I want you to keep him safe. I want you to protect him and I want you to listen to him and obey him. We had this in the last book and now he starts off right off the bat with Timothy. And his faith in Timothy, his trust in Timothy is not his trust in Timothy's ability to formulate thoughts and ideas. Timothy was not commissioned to engineer a new teaching. His trust is that Timothy will re-present the very same teaching that Paul has presented. This is important to stress because modern Christians tend to imagine that there was a teaching that was handed on to the church and it evolved and developed and so forth and so on. But the teaching was written down in the law and the prophets. And that is the same teaching 
that Jesus carries in the New Testament. It is the same teaching that Paul is carrying in his letters. And it is the very same teaching with no addendums and no amendments that Timothy is charged to teach. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Right. So the mercy is not you're feeling weak, I'm going to make you strong. The mercy is that you think you're weak, but actually you're strong. And the mercy is that he allows you in the state where you are to have the power that comes from the teaching at whatever station you find yourself. He comforts us in our affliction in order to comfort those who are in any affliction. He doesn't comfort us so we can sit on the beach with a corona. He comforts us in order to charge us with a duty, which is then to comfort those who are in need of comfort. And we can still trust in God and trust in his teaching whatever station we find ourselves in. Christians hear 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians through the lens of neo-paganism. What they hear when the gospel talks about suffering and persecution is that evil is doing something to them. What they hear when they hear about comfort and consolation and mercy is that God is intervening. So they see a false dichotomy between the blessing and the curse. But we know from the content of the Old Testament, which is regurgitated in the content of the New Testament, that the hand that blesses is also the hand that curses. Even when God is talking about consolation and affliction, he does so only after Paul has whipped the church in Roman Corinth and afflicted it with God's judgment. Because ultimately, if you don't understand God's judgment as the comforting, you're going to hand yourself over to the tyrant. God is the father who is a scarier master than the one whom you fear as the oppressor. God is the source of everything. So easily we fall into the trap of dualism because we think, oh, well, God is good, therefore he can't do evil, which is trying to judge the actions of God, which is the problem that we keep quoting from Ecclesiastes. Man has eternity in his heart but cannot grasp it. You can't grasp what is good or evil. And this is the problem. So we think that if we see something we disagree with or makes us feel sad or makes us feel uncomfortable, we need God to comfort us by making that bad stuff go away. No, the comfort we receive is don't worry about it. Everything will be fine in God's time, according to God's judgment and according to the instruction that we have received that good and evil lie only in the hands of God. Look at the story of the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets. You have Babylon in Ezekiel presented as God's right hand. The same Babylon in the minds of people who historicize the Bible that orchestrated the captivity and exile. But that's not what I read in Scripture. In Scripture, I don't see that Babylon orchestrated the captivity. What I hear in Scripture is that the Lord whistled to Babylon. So why are you afraid of the king of Babylon? Why are you afraid of the opponent when you know that they are under God's control? If you're afraid, then you place your trust in the sons of men because you give them more credit than God, who after he lets them wipe you out, might choose to wipe them out. That's Scripture. In Hosea, they're very afraid of the Assyrians because the Assyrians are going to come and smash their idols. 
God is not afraid of that because he reminds them, those idols, those aren't me. So you comfort others in 2 Corinthians by giving them the good news that there is a king who is more powerful than the other kings. And that's why, Richard, I can't stand it when people use the first letter of Corinthians to preach human weakness as a virtue. Because human weakness is not a virtue. There is no such thing as a human virtue. 1 Corinthians is preaching divine power. And you better believe that in the total arc of the biblical narrative, divine power is mightier than your opponents. Look at the cult of Hitler since World War II. People have made Hitler into this archetypal evil in whom all of the evils committed by the West are flushed. We use him as a toilet for our sins. And so by objectifying him as this ultimate, almost mythological, neo-religious evil, it allows us to avoid looking in the mirror. I'm not defending Hitler. Hitler was a monster. But who says that we are not monsters? You want to believe that the king of Babylon is objectively evil, and God doesn't let you. What God tells you is, whatever he is, you're worse, and I'm sending him to you as a judgment. That stinks. But that is the double-edged sword of comfort in 2 Corinthians. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. So this is so important for modern Christians to hear because some people believe that Christ suffered so that we don't have to. And here it says, as plain as day, For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, as Christ suffered, so we suffer. But if we suffer as Christ suffered, we can also share in the comfort that Christ shared in. And the comfort that Christ had was his trust in the will of his Father, which is, if I follow the will of God, then everything will be fine. And to continue on a thought you just mentioned, Father, human weakness as human beings understand it, is evil. The only good that you could call human weakness is submission, human submission to God's law. Now, sometimes the king is submitting to God's law. He has to. Does that mean he stops being a king and he goes and he mops the floor? No, it means he has wealth in abundance, so he better darn well take care of the poor. The king is placed in his station so he can take care of the poor in a way that I can't take care of the poor. He has a duty to comfort others. He has a duty to comfort others in a way that I don't have a duty to comfort others. Father, you have a duty to comfort others as a priest that I don't have. Every single person has a duty to comfort others, but in a way that only they can do. Not in the individualistic sense. Don't get me wrong. It's that I'm confronted today with the will of God in the reality I see around me, which I must understand according to Torah. The evil that I see around me with my own eye is in fact the judgment of God against me. The comfort that is abundant through Christ, it is the understanding that God's will is going to be done and I need to accept it. This is how you overcome the tyrant, whether it be the king of Assyria or Adolf Hitler. You recognize that God holds everything in the palm of his hand and you choose to view what you perceive as this evil. You choose to view it as the judgment of God, which disallows your judgment 
And what that does is it strips the tyrant of power so that you can hope against the present reality that this one who is standing before you is an imposter. He's not the real king. But it also means that after God puts down the tyrant, if he chooses to, you have a duty not to become the tyrant towards others. If you yourself put down the tyrant, you become the tyrant. That is the cycle that the Old Testament emasculates and ridicules. And the only way to be persecuted by Hitler and hold fellowship with a Palestinian or to be persecuted by a terrorist and hold fellowship with the people of Syria instead of making war out of fear and irrational anxiety. The only way is to step back and say, God is my father and God is mightier than the one whom I perceive as my oppressor. So if that's the case, I'm going to fear the Lord and not fear the tyrant, and I'm going to change the way I deal with others. I think this point that you highlighted, Richard, about the duty to comfort others is central to how the gospel functions. The fear of the Lord is linked to our treatment of other people. Sometimes people think that we receive the gospel so that we can convert more Christians. The reason you receive the gospel is not to comfort others to ensure that they're not going to hell. The reason you comfort others is to say, there's something bigger than this going on. There's something bigger than me going on that undermines the powers that you see around you. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation, which is the point we were just making. So we are following the line of Paul's argument. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort. So what Paul is saying is pure scripture. If I'm persecuted, it's the will of God for your sake. If I'm comforted, it's the will of God for your sake, because the blessing and the curse are in the palm of God's hand. It is him that I fear. Paul is showing that whether things are going well or badly in human terms, in both circumstances, his comfort is that he trusts in the will of God. Which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. So as you suffer, we suffer, and as we show trust, it's so that you continue to show trust in your suffering. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, parenthetically, because we know that the seed which God commanded us to plant is at work in you, as he says in Galatians. I don't trust you. I don't even trust Timothy. I trust the seed which was entrusted with Timothy, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort because we, the apostolic we, meaning Paul himself and he, that's the we here because of what we preach to you. And the sharing is not just of the comfort, but also sharing in the sufferings. This is the thing. The prosperity gospel would say you should not be suffering. The comfort is that the suffering will end. No, the true gospel is that God's will is at work even when you feel that you are suffering. So for all those people who feel bad about how much they're suffering, understand that Paul is also suffering. And Paul is comforted in doing the will of God. And what he shares with you is that you can also share in this comfort, which is scripture at work, even in these bad times that you're going through you can share in the comfort. And it's interesting how he passes it down the hierarchy. Jesus suffered and was comforted. 
we suffered and are comforted. Now you are suffering and are comforted, and you can pass this along to the next one who is suffering, who can be comforted. Have you ever met a human being who didn't feel comfort at one point in his life and then didn't suffer at another point in his life? Do you have any doubt that this letter is universal? Do you have any doubt that this letter is addressing the situation in which we live? Do you really think that this is about magic and that God strikes and comforts? No, Paul is telling you that this is how creation functions. And that's why it's so ingenious that scripture co-ops the agrarian metaphor. Because if you look at how the world works, things die in order that other things can live. That's the way of things, as Yoda would say. It's the way things work. Suffering is not evil. If you are wise, you realize that suffering is not evil. My daughter one time pointed out that when the newborn baby cries, it's because the cold of the air is the worst thing the baby has ever suffered in its life. Everything we suffer is relative, but every human being feels that he or she is suffering. This teaching about suffering therefore applies to every human being under the sun. Look at how arrogant religious philosophers are. It is supreme arrogance because they reject Genesis. They believe that man is the crowning achievement of God and the purpose of scripture. But that's not true. The whole beginning of Genesis deals with the Toledot of creation, not the Toledot of Adam. But we think God is talking about us because we're self-centered. So we write fancy theological papers about how suffering is evil, and then we, we sit back and wax philosophical about how could a loving God allow suffering. And this is stupid. It's stupid. It's stupid because it ignores science, and it's stupid because it's ignorant of the law and the prophets. Because scripture is explaining to you that you think suffering is evil, but if the cattle didn't die, you wouldn't have meat. If you didn't till the ground, which was fertilized by the death of other creatures, you wouldn't even have vegetables. So don't tell me as a vegetarian that you're innocent of the blood of the innocent. Because the whole system thrives on death. Paul's not interested in objectifying evil. He's interested in using the reality of the situation to produce God's work in you. And the fruit of that work is how much then you comfort others. Since we know suffering is a part of life, and we know it makes other people uncomfortable, why not, in light of the present reality of which suffering is just a fact, why not make other people's lives a little bit easier? This is the thing. You go to work, you have a hard day, your boss is a pain in the neck, and you suffer. You can come home after work and complain and grouse and drink and watch TV about how much you're suffering. Or you can go to work and your boss is not going to do anything differently and say, this is the job that I have. This is the boss that I have. I can accept this as my, quote, suffering, unquote. I'm just going to put the suffering in quotes. Relatively, it's not a lot of suffering compared to what Paul's talking about. This is first world suffering. <laughs> first world suffering is not addressed by the holy text. That's right. First world suffering actually is the cause of the suffering that really takes place in the story of the Bible. <laughs> exactly. So you have the, quote, suffering, unquote, you have at work. But then you accept it. You say, my comfort is that this is the job that God has given me so that I can provide for my family. This is the situation God has made me find myself in. And then I can come home to my family and rejoice that I did God's will in spite of how unpleasant I found my boss or unpleasant the tasks that were assigned to me. And I can come home 
and then I can comfort my wife or my children who had a tough day with a teacher they found uncomfortable or my wife who had a hard day at work or whatever. And then I comfort them saying, this is the day we had, but now we're together. Let's enjoy the time we have together rather than let the boss from today ruin our evening too. It's like my wife always says, people don't have problems. She said to me recently even, if you look at what people call problems in our culture, most of the people alive today, let alone most of the people who have ever lived in the history of the planet would die to have our problems. And I know everyone rolls their eyes as though this is just a cliche, but that's because you are spoiled. That's why you roll your eyes. Just look at the immigrant in your neighborhood and ask him or ask her what they went through before they came to these shores. Believe me, what you consider a problem as someone who grew up in the United States is not a problem. You're going to tell me, oh, but Americans suffer. They have cancer, Father Mark. Oh, and they don't have cancer in the refugee camps? They don't have cancer in the midst of civil war? They don't have cancer where people are starving to death and where they have to make fake food out of lumps of dirt? Who are you kidding? You want to tell me people suffer in the United States? It's silly, and I think we need to wake up to this reality because our victim mentality will bring suffering. I mean, I haven't seen anyone who's been protesting and complaining about American politics who doesn't have enough money to go on the internet and rant, who doesn't have enough money to have something to eat. So why do you feel so persecuted when you still live in such an abundant and stable society? Well, it's like a comedian I heard recently. He made a joke. What? You're expecting me to fly coach so that my kids can get character? People who complain that something is so terrible and wrong about their lives in the United States are living with a veil over their eyes, and they are blind to the real suffering that's being caused elsewhere. You have no right to be upset and righteously indignant about what happened in the United States because nothing happened! The world around you is burning and your life is stable and secure. You should be asking what's happening to the others. And then we could talk about how serious you are about the gospel. Because we live in the life that you talk about of comfort, do we use our comfort then to comfort others? Obviously not. Somebody who has a job and who has children and who has all of the comforts of modern society and stands at the water cooler at work and complains that the Native Americans have casinos and they're ripping us off and they should pay taxes. That's the false victimhood. And that's the victimhood or the sense of being a victim that the King of Babylon and Adolf Hitler count on because it's the mechanism of tyranny. That's how Putin runs Russia. The Russians, who are a major power like the United States, believe that they're victims. It's silly. You're not a victim. You're the oppressor. That's the key. And I'm mentioning Russia because Americans will say, oh, yes, well, that's what the Russians do. But they don't see that that's what their own leaders are doing to them. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. So what he says right off the bat is, don't get in your mind that things are easier for us. Don't get in your mind that our comfort comes from how easy our life is because we want you to realize how much suffering we did actually go through in Asia. And so our comfort is real comfort in that it comes through actual 
suffering that we went through. And following on the end of 1 Corinthians, it's only when you are as good as dead, hearkening unto the story of Abraham and Romans, it's only when you are as good as dead that you have no choice but to trust in the commandment of the Lord. Because there's nothing left to trust in. You can't trust that your next breath is coming. When Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me, like you and I have talked before, it means your life expectancy is between now and the top of that hill if you're actually carrying a cross in the Roman Empire. So knowing that there's nothing to trust in, nothing to trust in, that's when the only trust that's left is in God. And if you trust in the commandment of God, he will produce life who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope. And this is what I'm saying about the present tyranny. If you are afraid of Hitler, you are placing your hope in Hitler. If you are under the oppression of a tyrant and you keep hoping for a better tyrant, you have rejected God from being king over you. If you hope in God, no matter how mighty Hitler becomes, you will always be free even at the darkest hour, because you understand that the oppression is from the hand of the one that also blesses. And he will yet deliver us, you also joining in helping us through your prayers, so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor slash grace bestowed on us through the prayers of many. Now, we don't want to think that this is just magical, that they believed in God, and so then God freed them from this sentence of death and they were able to live another day by some miracle at the hand of God. We need to hear this in the words of the three youths who say, God can free us from this, but even if he doesn't, we will not bow down to you. Whatever happens, it's not you, O king, who has power, but God who has power. And so it's not waiting for the hand to come from the sky to pluck us out of this position we find ourselves and put us somewhere else. That's not what we're waiting for. It's that if God wanted to, He could, but if he doesn't, this is also good. And this is why I want to make this clear at the end of this first episode on 2 Corinthians. This is why popular psychology, which encourages exploring how your father was mean to you or your mother, whatever authority figure you have a hang-up about, undermines scripture. Because when you sit there and try to figure out how your parental figure was abusive towards you and then you want to justify rebelling against your parental figure and you know you never move past the sense of victimhood you cannot become a child of god because you are giving power to a human authority this is what people don't understand and when you try to rebel against a human authority you are giving power to the human authority you are falling in the trap You have to be so afraid of your true father that the father whom you used to fear becomes immaterial. It's the way things work. And that's why I will never relent, Richard, in my critique of popular psychology. It's a joke. Everything becomes framed by abusive males. I mean, in Western culture now, it's abusive males. But there'll be another society one day that will talk about abusive females or abusive... I mean, people get caught up in this nonsense. You have to be set free. You have to hope against the present reality, not give in to it and become a part of it. Because the ones who keep complaining about their parents are the ones who abuse their children. You better believe it. It's because they don't have the comfort of the teaching. They can't comfort others. Everything is happening according to God's will. Eternity is beyond my grasp. Thank you very much, Dr. Thank you, Father. Have a great week. Thank you, too. 
just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.